satisfied. You're content. You're not displeased. Now here's some interesting statistics that uh, should result in us concluding that the average American is very content. Now first of all, the U.S. is the largest, most technological and powerful economy in the world. Actually, you can put that in all of history. The uh, per capita GDP last year was 37,800. The budget revenue last year was $1.782 trillion with an unemployment rate at or below 6%. There were 182 million fixed phone lines, and this one surprised me, 159 million cell phones. Walking around among the teenagers Friday night, I began to believe it. (laughs) They all had a cell phone. I still can't figure out which button to press. Uh, For entertainment, there are over 10,000 radio stations. That's not including those that come in over the internet. 1,500 TV stations and 9,000 cable channels. And you thought your satellite brought in a lot of (laughs) signals. Now, if you need to go somewhere in the U.S. alone, there's over 15,000 airports. Life expectancy for those children born last year for men has risen to 75 and 80 for women. Now, with all that, we should be pretty happy, shouldn't we? And yet we don't find that Americans generally as a people are very content people. Consider the following. I just listed these out here. With jobs, most people want more pay, more vacation, more time off, and less work. Discontentment with spouses. It shows up in affairs, divorce, and domestic turmoil. All those things are still at epidemic proportions. Now, parents complain about kids. I guess that's fair. Kids complain about parents. But if you listen, you'll find either you have too many kids or not enough kids. And all kids are expensive, so then you have to deal with the fact that either you've got to find an extra source of income and or you have to stay home as well to watch them. If we look and analyze the amount of time that the average person spends and the money they spend on trying to change something about their body, we'd have to conclude that almost nobody likes their physical body. We're all trying to change hair, face, size, shape, fitness, and you'd like to change your age. Little ones want to be older and older ones want to be younger. You can't change age though. If we looked at consumer debt and Uh, credit levels, which are astronomical, Americans still are not satisfied with material things because there's always something else to buy. Americans usually find something to complain about in church, too. You ever notice that? No. Thank you, Nancy. We find that sermons are either too long, too short, too intellectual, too simple, and the music's either too loud, too soft, too fast, too slow, too old, or too new. You ever had to struggle with that, Stephen? <laughs> okay. We find something to complain about. Why are we not content? Because never has this country really had so much and yet been so discontented. All the basic needs are met. Even for those at the so-called poverty level in the United States, all basic needs are met. There's food, clothing, and shelter. 
And because of that, the focus tends to change to frivolous, unmet desires, especially methods of escape and diversion or to find satisfaction. Now, in saying all this, we have to recognize as well that there are some good things about discontentment. Discontentment is a great motivator. In fact, without discontentment, we probably wouldn't be able to market much of anything, would we? That's how Madison Avenue works. They've got to make you discontent with something in order to get you to buy their product. So if uh, you know your breath is bad, here, take this mint, and not only will you be happy, but so will all the people around you. If your, uh, your hair is a mess, use this product, and you will please be pleased by how you look. If, um, if your car is not all you like to be, well, buy or lease this particular model, and everything will be wonderful for you. All right, that's marketing, right? Now, in the spiritual realm, we have to realize that a certain amount of discontentment is good because it also is a motivator for us in things like uh, prayer life. You satisfied with your prayer life? You satisfied with your uh, personal Bible study, your service to the Lord? You see, there should be some discontentment there. I'm not satisfied. There's more I'd like to do, and that should drive us on to accomplish those very things. Press on. But should, as I have up there on the screen, should, should Christians be marked by the discontentment that is common to those that are not Christians, common to our society? Should we be characterized the same way as they are? I don't think that's what Scripture shows us. Should Christians be like non-Christians and be anxious and angry and jealous and hurt and vengeful and lonely and discouraged? Should we walk around thinking that uh, somehow uh, God's holding back on us and we're not getting everything that life has to offer? Either that or feeling like maybe we're a failure because we don't have what everybody else has. The sad fact is, is that many professing Christians do pursue the same things that the non-Christian does to try to find satisfaction in life. And so they're left with the same feelings. It's very common for us to want higher incomes, more things, bigger house, nicer car, more comfort, exotic vacations, uh, be more involved with sports and hobbies, continually changing relationships. All those things are common to Christians as well. And that doesn't mean it's wrong to desire to better yourself. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the emotional response to it. Now, I don't think anybody here enjoys being discontent. If you do, raise your hand and we'll make an appointment right now for you to come in and talk with me, okay? You enjoy being discontent. Good, you're all normal people. We don't like that. But should we be trying to find contentment in the things of this world? You see, God wants us to be different from the world. He wants us to be content. And if that's true, then why is it so often we are just like the world? And then how do we change to be different than those that are around us? Turn over to Philippians chapter 4. If you're not there already, because this is going to be the basis for, uh, I think we'll be on this for about four weeks, of coming to grips with what I'm calling the secret of contentment. Paul doesn't want it to be a secret. It's something that he learned. He wants you to learn that as well. Because as we do, we'll have a greater response, even going back to things we talked about in the last couple of months. Being able to rejoice in the Lord always. Because we'll see that God is supplying for us. Now, as we're turning there, just remember, Paul's situation is not good for those who haven't been here as part of the study. He's imprisoned. There are Christians who are purposely striving to cause him greater distress. And yet, Paul's rejoicing. He has received a gift from the Philippians, and the point of this passage is he is thanking them for this gift. 
but he's also going to share with them something about how he can live his life and how he wants them to live their life in trusting the Lord. It says this, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at first preaching the gospel after I depart from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I receive everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now in this passage, we find that Paul thanks the Philippians for their concern, demonstrating this very practical manner of bringing a present to him through Epaphroditus. They have done this in the past. They've done it in the present. And he is grateful for it. He encouraged them. He points out the gift was well-pleasing to God. That phrase there, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. It was part of their worship to God. In addition, we find that Paul is glad to get the gift. But it's not because he's seeking after it, even though there were many times it was the only gift he received. Because of the Philippians' ministry to him, he was able to minister to other people, and he's grateful for that. But what he's more excited about is what the gift meant in terms of their spiritual growth and their partnership with him in the ministry he was doing. We also find that Paul wants the Philippians to know this secret he's learned. The secret of being content in every circumstance. A secret by which Paul had come to understand and live so he was rejoiced in the fact God would meet all his needs and he will meet their needs too. He'll meet your needs. We can trust him for that. He says, to what degree? He shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus in verse 19. Now how much is that? The riches of glory in Christ Jesus, it's an infinite abundance. But it's according to your need, not according to your desire. But the first thing we need to understand, though, about this secret is it's something that, that um, Paul learned. I think I'm off on my screen here. Contentment is something that is actively learned. Ah, okay, I'm correct. I think I need stronger glasses. I can't see the screen down here very well anymore. Okay? It's a secret he says he learned. It didn't come automatically. And we like that, but it doesn't come automatically. We like if we got saved and everything's hunky-dory from then on, we're perfect. It doesn't work that way, does it? You're a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, but like a baby, you must grow and mature in Christ in order to receive all the benefits of walking with him. Because you've got to learn to walk. You've got to grow. And while there's radical changes, in fact, let's face it, becoming a Christian is the most radical change imaginable. You who are dead in trespasses and sin, alive in Christ. What was dead is alive. That's radical. 
But God doesn't wave a magic wand. He doesn't make you insmature. He does not zap you at some point in your life and suddenly you're going to live a holy life that matches your positional righteousness in Christ. Now, there are many Christians who think that's going to happen and so they remain passive in their walk with Christ. Paul didn't do that. He never called anybody to do that. He doesn't want you waiting around waiting for some supernatural anointing which from that point on you actually live for him. Now, theologically, back in the turn of the 1800s and the 1900s, actually throughout the 1800s, there's a whole movement where they're looking for what was called the second blessing. And it was a passive kind of thing that in modern times still going on, those of you who have a Pentecostal or charismatic background or, or have friends in that, that second blessing in that, those churches theologically is to be evidenced by speaking in an unknown tongue. That's their evidence. Say, now we've got the second blessing. And that's why there's an emphasis upon it within those churches. People want you to have this and, and be able to walk with God. But those from that background, you know, and you can have friends there, that it's not this spiritual zap and suddenly you're a holy person for the rest of your life. You still walk and have to struggle like everybody else, every other Christian. It's not quite what it was cracked up to be. You don't become instantly holy and you don't become instantly content. Paul had to learn to be content. He had to be active in learning to be content. He had to go through quite a few experiences to learn the lessons of being content. It's not time that teaches you. It's the experiences that occur over time that teach you. And Paul learned actively. Well, how do we find, define this contentment that Paul says he learned in Philippians 4.11? Now, we already looked at Webster says contentment is the state or quality of being satisfied, not displeased. But that's not the meaning here in Philippians 4.11. Unfortunately, words change meaning over time. And Webster's definition doesn't fit with what Paul was talking about. The word there, interesting word, aterkeres, um, it's two words put together. The first one, uh, autos, meaning self, and then arkeo, meaning satisfied or sufficient. You put them together, you end up with self-sufficient, not needing assistance from outside. Now put it in the context. Paul said he had learned to be, this word here, self-satisfacient, not needing outside in referring to the Philippians. I don't need your help. I'm sufficient in what I have already. It's already been given to me. He's so thankful for it. But I've learned the secret of being self-sufficient, of not needing an outside source from other people. He had learned the secret of no longer reacting to his environment, responding to it because of the way it was. Or as someone once described, he learned how to become a thermostat, not a thermometer. A thermometer changes as heat and cold come up and down, doesn't it? But a thermostat stays steady and reacts to the environment by changing it, changing a different perspective, responds to it in a different way. Paul had learned that. But have you learned that secret yet? Have you learned to be able to respond in a way, regardless of what your circumstances are, that's still pleasing to Christ? Paul learned this. How do you respond? Here's uh, some situations that have come up. These are all from real life. In fact, every single one I'm going to mention here has happened to someone I know personally. Not someone I read about a book. Someone, a lot of times, we walk through it with someone personally. 
people don't like you. At work, school, neighbors, they don't like you. And they let you know they don't like you. How are you going to respond to that? Your in-laws don't like you and they are actively seeking to interfere in your marriage. You go outside and get in your car and someone smashed into it, hit and run. Just after you finish fixing it up. You find yourself suddenly unemployed. You get home, you found your house was burglarized and broken into. Or worse, you get home, you find your house is burned down and you have nothing except what's on your back. You're mugged. You're arrested and jailed for something you didn't do. Your spouse develops severe physical handicaps. You find that you cannot have children of your own. Your child dies. It's hard enough to put a parent in the grave, but a child? They're supposed to put you in the grave. It's supposed to be the other way around. It hurts. You are diagnosed with an incurable terminal disease. Those are real things. Those are things that we've experienced. And I always read, read through those things. You have gone through some of those things yourself. Or you have gone through it with a friend who has the particular circumstances. How do you respond? Can you be content in those situations? Paul could. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, Paul is using this. He's defending his apostleship here. But what he lists here are some of the things he has gone through even while he's writing to the Philippians about being content. Here's things he's gone through. Starting in verse uh, 24... Well, I'll start in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, not singular, plural, beaten times without number. He lost count of how many times he was mugged. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Now, what would your reaction be to these things that Paul just listed out? You still going to sign up to follow Christ? Hey, I can't wait to be beaten by rods so I can't figure it out anymore. Lose count of it. Want to spend a night and day out in the deep? Treading water? Hungry? Cold? Paul went through all those things and yet he still says, I've learned the secret of being content. Of being self-satisfied, of self-sufficient within what God has given me without an outside influence. That's quite a statement, especially in light of this, isn't it? Now, I'm not asking if you'd like any of it. Again, if you would like those things, we need to have a long talk about your sanity. None of us likes it. And Paul doesn't say he likes it. But he says he learned to be content despite those circumstances. 
Have you reached that level of Christian maturity in which you can remain completely in control of yourself regardless of circumstances? Yes, you still feel all the emotions that can be there. And that's important. You haven't distanced yourself. You feel everything, but you're not falling apart. You're still going towards those lifetime goals regardless of what's going on around you. It hasn't swayed you. It hasn't changed you. And yet still feeling it all. Now, before I explain the secret, I need to explain why contentment of this nature, this being self-satisfied, this in control of yourself regardless of circumstances, still feeling all the personal things that are going on, uh, having sympathy for others, being empathetic for others. Why is it that the humans don't go that direction? How can we do it? I want to explain that. But we need to first understand why humans don't. In fact, we have to say this. Biblical contentment is impossible for unbelievers and it's very difficult for immature Christians. Why? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul explains here something about those who do not know Christ and the changes, the radical changes that start in after you do know Christ as your Savior. But in it, you also find out why you can't be content. He says this, starting in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 2, You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what we all born as. That's the condition we come into this world. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were dead, he makes you alive, and he gives you a purpose. But until you're made alive and have a purpose, you're not going to have contentment. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Okay? You're dead. That means you're separated from God. That's what death is. Death is a separation. Physical death is separation of your soul from your physical body. Spiritual death is your soul is separated from your creator. You're separated from God. Now, you may have spiritual feelings of some sort, but if you've not been made alive together with Christ, you've not been saved by God's grace through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you, then in reality is, is you're spiritually dead. You're separated from him. You do not have a personal relationship with your Creator. Now, you may have spiritual feelings of, towards some entity that's posing as God for you, but it's not the God who created you. It's something else. Being spiritually dead, you cannot do what God has commanded. You can't obey Him. You can't please Him. And instead, your life is lived according to the course of the, this world. You live like everyone else. And every Christian was once in that state. What do we mean by that? Well, you also live under the control of Satan. This phrase, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's a euphemism for Satan. That's who was controlling you. That's who is controlling you without Christ. And he is the one that sets your agenda because you are 
one of the sons of disobedience in which that spirit is working. Paul further explains down in verse 3 that you live and indulge the lust of the flesh. Now, lust simply means strong desire. And coupled here with flesh, it's talking about whatever your physical body craves. Food, pleasure, comfort. And that's why people struggle so much with those things. We struggle with a healthy diet. We would rather eat junk food than Brussels sprouts and broccoli. Although I do know a couple kids that really like Brussels sprouts. Praise God. Okay? But they'd rather eat potato chips. Not good for you. We struggle with that. Uh, why is it that people give in so much to sexual temptations? Or they're busy trying to find whatever it is that's going to make their life comfortable. How much time and energy we put trying to make sure our body is comfortable in its environment. So we're always looking to try and make sure the temperature is right, the humidity is right. We get enough sunlight. We want our surroundings to be comfortable physically. So we wear soft clothes. We've got really nice padded chairs. Uh, we want a heated water bed so it's really comfortable when you get in. You can sleep well. Uh, you want conveniences. You know, like here's a remote control for this thing. We all got remote controls for almost everything. Someone told me the other day, and I didn't understand this one, they got a, a, a radio for their car that has a remote. Now, the only thing I can think for that, it must be the back seat driver can actually control that too, right? Controls everything from the back seat. We don't want to have to reach and do anything so make it as easy as possible. It's comfort. We like those things. Because it fits right there. Now, Paul also said that they indulge the lusts of the mind or the desires of the mind. You cater to whatever your mind would like to think about. So you seek to gratify those mental appetites. Anything that absorbs your mental attention and energy. Could be fame, could be your reputation, knowledge, talent, uh, entertainment, amusements, position, power, whatever fills your mind. So those who are spiritually dead, controlled by Satan and by nature a child of wrath, they have no hope of contentment. They can't have it. There's no way to get it because they're looking in all the wrong places. And yet the desire for contentment, having peace, having joy, having happiness, it's strong. Some means must be formulated to try and achieve it. And Satan has guided the development of various worldviews so that the spiritually dead man can try and make some sense out of his existence and somehow find something that will be a substitute for true contentment. It's a substitute to quell man's search. They say, well, wait a minute. All right, that's good, that's fine, and, and maybe there's some people here who are not believers and you're speaking to them. Well, yes. You say, well, I, I already know Christ. You know, I'm made alive with him. I received his grace through faith and, and, and believe on his sacrifice and the cross of my sins. I mean, so what are you saying? What does that have to do with me? Paul said, you were such as these if you're a Christian. That's where you came from. You were dead. You're made alive. You have a purpose in good works. The question is, is where are you living? Have you ever thought about how much that Paul talks about being a true Christian and walking with Christ? Yeah, you may be a real Christian. Power of sin has broken your life. But are you living in righteousness? This is immature versus mature Christianity. You're a new creature in Christ, but are you living in righteousness? Are you living the way God has now made you in Christ? It's got to be asked. Look over at uh, Romans chapter 6. Paul has all these, these statements. 
not just here in Rome, in other places. He calls for Christians to quit acting like they're dead and start living like they're alive. Act like what God has made you. Move forward. Live in the power of Christ day by day, moment by moment, as a new creature which God has made you. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. He can't say something stronger than that. God forbid. Impossible. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's a rhetorical question. You shouldn't be living in it. Drop down to verse 6. He says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, Christ, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Just building his argument. You've been baptized with him, identifying your, your, your self-identification with his crucifixion and risen to newness of life, and yet you're living like you're still dead. Drop down to verse 11. He says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin, instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourself to God as those alive from the dead your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. There has to be a change. God has made a change. Now live according to the change. I'm not sure what analogy to give, but maybe something radical. You grew up in New York City. You moved to Boston. You decided you'd become a Bostonite and you're going to start rooting for the Red Sox. Ed's going, no, 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 no. Can't happen, okay? That's a, that, would that be a pretty radical change? Yeah, yeah, it would be, Okay. Take that and multiply it because there's even more radical change. I don't mean to insinuate that the, the Yankees are sin, okay, and that the Red Sox are righteousness. I'm not insinuating that. We all know it's the Dodgers that we should be rooting for. <laughs> Flip over to Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 1. Look what Paul says here. Uh, Colossians uh, let's see if I can find the right verse now 3 chapter 3 Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 so the Listing there is incorrect. Chapter 3. He says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Heavenly minded versus earthly minded. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's that radical change when you become a Christian. You were one thing, you're now something radically different. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So he's, again, talking about the same thing he's talking about in Philippians. You once were there, but you're not there any longer. You shouldn't be there any longer. You were dead in trespass and said, God made you alive. You need to live that way. So he goes on, verse 8, 
But now also put them all aside, these things that used to mark you, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, having put on the new self, which is also being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we're supposed to become like. The problem we face as Christians, we easily slip back into those old habits, those old ways of thinking, or we will succumb to the peer pressure that's around us. We want to do what everybody else is doing because we don't want to be the oddball. We want to fit in. So if they're doing it, well, well, we'll do it too. But that's not what God has called us to do. We're to be marked by becoming like Christ. That's why Paul is so strong in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the pressure, its molding capacity, push you into making it like it, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be different. You may be a Christian, but too often, too many Christians, they live, they act, and think in practical terms like a non-Christian. The habits haven't changed, or they may have changed for a while, and you go right back to it. And let's face it, when pressure comes on, it's easy to go back to the old habits. But God has called us to do something else. Now, with that in mind, I want to go over major worldviews. This isn't going to be extensive. It's going to be pretty brief here. But the way, in general, people think out there. Because you came out of one of these views of some sort, and it's easy to go back to it, or to be in a situation where peer pressure kind of pushes you that direction. And so, in living, instead of living in Christ, you're living in something that's opposite of Christ. And it affects us as Christians. Now, the first one is deism. And this worldview is popular with the rise of rationalism in the 1700s. The belief was that there was a God, but he's now impersonal. He basically, he created everything and got it started and he's backed out and he has no involvement. Deism. If God's not involved, then man's hope for contentment is figuring it all out and making it work for himself. It's up to you. Ecclesiastes expresses the ultimate futility of this view because there's no real gain to man's work. Chapter 1, verse 1. Generations come, they go with nothing changing. 1, 2. There's nothing new under the sun. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. You'll eventually be forgotten. Verse 11. And even with increasing wisdom and knowledge, there's only grief and increasing pain. Verse 18. Boy, Ecclesiastes is exciting, isn't it? That's pretty depressing for a deist, isn't it? But you know what? Many Christians end up as practical deists. Because in their view is that God is not interested in me. I'll keep trying anyways. You don't really believe there's a personal relationship there. And as problems in life arise, you take the view, well, you hang in there, but you know what contentment is there in just survival? Prayers are offered, but they're out of duty. The sense of this personal relationship with the Creator is lacking or it's non-existent. He's off there somewhere, but he doesn't really pay attention to me. Not really interested in me. Perhaps it can also descend into despair or a view of compliance and acceptance, but that's not the way God made us. Not the way he wants us to live. Maybe it's couched in some sort of spiritual terms, but bottom line is a resignation. What will be, will be, and I can't do anything about it, I might as well accept it. That's Christian fatalism. And the two words should not go together. Christians are not fatalistic. 
But a person who does not believe God really cares is going to act that way. But we know God does care. He's proven it. He is entered into our lives. But fatalism ends up with a complacency and indifference to actively living for Christ. If complacency and indifference mark your life, then you may be a Christian deist. That's where you've gone off. Another view is naturalism. Only nature exists. God is removed. It's just nature. Now, that's the philosophical basis for evolution and evolutionary thought that's invaded so much of how we live now. Our education is is based on that. Naturalism leaves the meaning of life only in the here and now. So contentment must come from immediate circumstances because that's all you've got. You've got to live for yourself. And with that in view, if I can do what I want, I'll be happy. So you live for pleasure. Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes this attempt. Diane and I have been reading Ecclesiastes with the kids in the morning. And uh, what Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 addresses this. It says this, I explore with my mind, starting verse 3, how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was still guiding me wisely. So, full intoxication with, but not drunk. How to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the heaven, under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself in which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Man, what a nice spread, huh? And we're worried about our little garden. He says, I bought male and female slaves and I had home-born slaves. In other words, ease of life was by having someone else do it. So all the conveniences, you want a modern equivalent? Fill your home with every kind of convenient product you can think of. He had it because he had them do it. Uh, He goes on, he says, uh, I possess flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He's wealthy. So I provided myself male and female singers. So he didn't have CDs, sorry. He didn't have an iPod or anything like that. He just have a choir following around. I'd like to hear something, please. You know, and they'd follow him around and singing. You know, not bad. Um, but that's what he's got. It says then, uh, see, sing it, the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great, increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. You think his conclusion would be, and I was content. No, his conclusion, verse 11, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And so the naturalist works, but the end is going to end up there. Tell me, Christian, is your life about a pursuit of pleasure? Do you really think it's going to become satisfying once you achieve whatever it is you're after to get ahead a little bit more, and then it'll be okay? Then you can be content? It's not what it says. If that's what you're after, in practical terms, you're a naturalist. Now, going off this, there's, next is um, nihilism. Now, the nihilists, it's a child of naturalism, but they boldly recognize there's no ultimate meaning in life. The fruit of your labor feeds your mouth, but soon you're hungry again, so there's no satisfaction in anything. They understand that. For them, life is an absurd accident and there's no reason to try. The result is a complacency or a despair or just simple, I quit. 
You know, that's the basis for most people who commit suicide. It comes from this. There's no purpose, so why bother to endure the pain of the continued existence? And don't think for a moment it doesn't affect a Christian. It can. Same philosophy. You can quickly descend down as, I don't understand, don't know, I don't believe God really has any plan for him anymore, I might as well get out. I was the executor of the estate of a fellow that he and I served as elders together in a church. And he researched how to kill himself. And it was nasty. Yeah, this kind of thought can affect Christians too. Then there's existentialism. Existentialism also understands life is absurd. It ends in the grave. But you need to go on and make your choices anyway. So for them, contentment and meaning come from doing your own thing and not subjecting yourself to the world because it's considered to be stupid anyway. Again, an indifference to others develops. And if you think your life is going to be satisfied in self-autonomy when you can be the captain of your own ship, the master of your own fate, then in practical terms, you become an existentialist. It's affecting your, your walk, how you live. And that's not going to bring satisfaction. Then there's pantheism. Pantheism is uh, something that's taken a strong foothold in our society, extremely strong. Uh, its invasion in the 60s has really gone into uh, all sorts of levels of our society, and we don't even think about it anymore, but it's there. This is the view of the Eastern mysticism. Physical life is relatively unimportant, so only the bare essentials for it are done. Uh, the current life, is, it's, we're going to increase spirituality, and we see a lot of that going on currently. In this view, contentment comes from not from having or doing, but from being, existing. The goal is to become one with the universe, thereby becoming nothing yourself. That's how the state of nirvana is described. Peace and tranquility are gained by withdrawing from the world through meditation and solitude. As one person put it, you've achieved the ultimate success when you are no longer involved with the problems of life. You've become like a rock with a smile painted on it. Have you met people like that? It's like talking to a rock. I mean, where are they? Well, pantheism. I'm removing myself from life. Now, Christianity has been severely assaulted by Eastern mystical thought. Actually, that goes back a long ways. Uh, Christian asceticism, back even into the early centuries, had this in mind. Early Gnosticism had this view. But spirituality is everything and, and the daily life stuff is nothing. That's not how God has made us. All of us, body, soul, spirit, all of what we are is involved in our walk with Christ. Now, some professing believers have even come to substitute biblical meditation, which is an active use of your mind. In fact, the word meditation means to, uh, it's used for describing a cow chewing its cud. It's getting everything out of it so you can apply it in your life. That's how we meditate on Scripture. We're trying to think through all the ramifications of what it means and how it affects us personally and then going and living that way. But some have substituted biblical meditation for an Eastern meditation, which a mantra is used that then opens you up to whatever is out there. It's just a, a, a constant repetition. Now, I need to be frank here because there is an element of this very thing that has shown up in a lot of charismatic circles. What's being done is a mantra. Listen to it. It is a repetitious phrase, and it just keeps going on. 1 Corinthians 14, 15 states real clearly, we're to pray with the spirit and we're to pray with the mind. 
It's not an either or. It's both together. God wants us to think through what we're doing. Both spirit and intellect are involved in proper prayer. If you're seeking a relationship with God, but you're leaving your mind out to lunch, you've probably been affected by this. It's a pantheistic thought. It comes from that worldview, but it's a mysticism that's not biblical. Then there's humanism. Humanism is really the latest step in this long line of progression of worldviews. But rather than losing yourself in God, which is pantheism or what they perceive to be God, in this view, you must realize you already have unlimited power to reach a state of understanding where everything is wonderful. It's inside yourself. You've got to go deeper within you. So you turn inward. That's where you're going to find meaning of life. Now, ultimately, where this view ends up is that you become the substitute God. It's all within you. And this view finds a home with secular psychologists and philosophers and a lot of the cult groups. It's taught in Christian cults. You either are or can be a God like Jesus Christ. And yes, I have heard that taught on Christian TV radio. You can be a God like Christ. Well, the last view is Christian theism. Now, I'm mentioning this one because this is the only one where you can find biblical contentment. Christian theism. There is a real, true, infinite God who is creator of all things and he is personal. He knows you. As Stephen pointed out earlier, he knows the number of hairs on your head, even a running count on many of us, okay? He knows you that well and that personally. He is intimately involved in everything in your life. Not only that, but he has revealed himself to man that we might know him and his will for our life. He understood that we are sinners. We have estranged ourselves from him. We have disobeyed him. And he has provided salvation for sinful man through Jesus Christ, sacrificing the cross, paying the penalty, and then through faith in him we receive forgiveness. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own character. Merciful and gracious. That's the nature of the God we worship. I am brought back into a personal relationship with the one who created me through my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I belong to God. And my life makes sense in living for the purposes that he has set before me, both for the present and for eternity. My life is about serving God. That's Paul's view. That's why he could be content. If this last worldview is not what you hold in both belief and practice, you will never be content. You cannot be content. It's impossible for it to happen. Because you really are left just to your own devices and trying to find something to make it work. Paul's contentment of self-sufficiency isn't self-sufficiency in himself alone. Look there at verse 11 again. Just to point it out. I can do 13. 13 is dealing with contentment. That he talks about 11. He learned to be content in whatever circumstances. Verse 13 is, I can do all things through Him, or the One, referring to Christ, who strengthens me. 
He could be not needing a position of outside resources because he found everything sufficient in Christ. It's Christian theism. That is where God wants us to live. Relying upon him, and in relying upon him, we can face whatever comes about us in the world, no matter what the circumstances. We can face those situations content in Christ. Now, if your worldview isn't this solid Christian theism, if it's not there, or if it's mixed with all these other worldviews, understand the problems you're going to have. That's why I went over these this morning. That has to be corrected first. You need to obey what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2. You go from being dead in trespass and sin, being made alive together with Christ, and now living for the purposes he has set before you. You can't keep going back and living like when you were dead in trespass and sin. You can't keep going back to the old life and putting on dead man's clothes. Don't crawl back into the corpse. Okay? You've got to live for him and you've got to make up your mind that that's what you're going to do. And in doing that, now you can progress to learning the secret that Paul did. And again, he learned it. It didn't come instantaneously. He learned it. Now, what is the secret? Well, we're out of time. You've got to come back next week. You're going to be very discontent until next week when we go over it. But that's where we're going to be hitting. How did he learn it? How was he able to put this into practice so that he could be content in Christ no matter what was going on? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you guide us and direct us. And I know that this morning as we're going through these things, there's no fun or pleasure in talking about what other people believe. And yet we need to recognize it too often having come from those views ourself or being influenced by those who hold to them, we stray away from what your word calls us to do. We stray away from this relationship you called us into through Christ. Forgive us for that. But ask your Holy Spirit, reveal it to us as well where we have strayed. Father, we would put aside the old man. Father, quit acting like corpses. But Father, rejoice and live in the fullness and freedom there is and being made alive in Christ. Finding a life that is not just for eternity's sake, but Father, in the here and the now, in the very present, is worth living and is exciting to live. For that is your desire for us. And we thank you so much for all that he has done so that we can have that very opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.